Content warning. This episode includes discussion of suicide. I had a scary experience with fire when I was a kid. I grew up in Ohio in a little town called Westerville. At the time, I was probably around 12 or 13. This was on a Saturday, and I was hanging out with some of my friends from around the neighborhood. We were just doing stuff that kids do, mostly setting up ramps and jumping our bikes over them. At some point, we were walking around in kind of a wooded area, not the deep forest, but we were kind of off by ourselves, out of the sight of any adults. One of the guys had brought a lighter, and he was just flicking it, finding little sticks to light on fire. I guess as a preteen boy, this is pretty fascinating. It also had a little element of excitement, because we all knew this was something we really weren't supposed to be doing. Eventually, he had a few sticks on fire, which he was holding, and when the flames got big, he kind of panicked and dropped them. Of course, that meant the dry grass on the ground caught fire, and all of a sudden, things were starting to get out of control. But fortunately, the rest of us didn't panic like he did. We all got together and stomped out the flames before they got very big. We were just stupid kids, and we were lucky the situation didn't turn into a huge problem. My guest today is Sally. She experienced a house fire when she was young, and it was a scary experience that changed her life. Because on the day of the fire, Sally lost more than just her house. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes. And it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind, but there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue 
That's the Jordan Harbinger show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What kind of work did your dad do? He was an electrician and he actually like at different jobs, like throughout his life, uh, when I look back on things, he always like that was the main idea of the job, whether it was like maintenance or whatever. It was always electrician. And how would you describe your family when you were a child? Our family, like my immediate family, it was me, uh, my parents, my mom and my dad, and my older brother. He's five years older. We lived in a small house in the Bay Area. It was a Christian home, and my mom's family actually was super involved in our lives and super close in proximity. Everyone lived within like five minutes of each other. And I think that really played a big part of my upbringing too, because my grandparents were always around. My aunt and uncle were always going to church. My brother, my mom, and my dad. That was, I mean, it was a loving home for sure, but it was, I mean, it was just the four of us, you know? So it was a very family-oriented atmosphere. Yes, very much. You did a lot of things as a family. Yes. More so, I would say, when I look back, I think probably just because of the dynamics, like as I got older, but I think of like, we'd always did camping and things like that. And that was more so again with my dad would go often, especially when I was small. But as I got older and stuff that changed, but it was definitely, I remember more outings, like with my grandparents, like it'd be my mom, her parents, her sister and, and that kind of thing. They're just very close and very loving, very encouraging. Now, I understand that that family dynamic kind of began to shift around the time when you were about nine years old. What what happened then? My dad worked as an electrician for, uh, it was a pretty large company. Again, it was in the Bay Area. It was called NUMI, stood for New United Motors Manufacturing incorporated, I think. I could have gotten that very wrong. But it was something to that effect. 
They manufactured Toyotas. It was this huge plant, brought a lot of jobs to the Bay Area and everything like that. And uh, I guess one day I remember coming home from school and he was home and that was not normal. And they told me that he had fallen and hurt his back. And as a child, I didn't really think much of it. I just thought, oh, no, like, I hope you're okay. And not thinking that it was going to carry on for years and become such a impactful moment in my life, too. Um, and for, I mean, especially for my dad, I'm both my parents, everybody, you know, everyone was affected by this. Right, because it caused him to not be able to work anymore, right? Correct, yes. He he had fell, I guess, off of a platform at work just onto his back. And at that point, I guess it had done something to his discs. I don't fully understand. He had like a herniated disc or something. I don't know all the medical terms, but basically they had diagnosed him as being like 70% disabled after that took place. So it definitely prevented him from returning to work anytime soon. That's always difficult, like especially back in during that time in that era, perhaps. The man is the breadwinner. Yes. And it's it's kind of something that men would identify with that yes. wow, I can't provide for my family anymore. What did he indicate that he felt that way at all? Oh, one one hundred percent. Like I and especially our family dynamic, I would say it was very much more on that traditional, quote unquote, traditional side. My mom stayed home with us. My dad worked and he was the sole provider pretty much in the financial aspect of things. And I knew even then that it was hard for him. And of course, looking back and being able to really think about it. I know that was a huge portion of like his struggles mentally and emotionally was I who am I like what good am I kind of now that I can't do anything for the most part. Not to mention was he in pain from his in injuries? Did that continue? Yes. Generally he couldn't sit for a long period of time. He couldn't stand for a long period of time just lots of medications to try to uh, cope with that, which led to more issues too. Was speaking with my brother recently and just kind of going over things and how he remembered different, you know, times that we had. And um, he had brought up something that I had forgotten too, that like at one point my dad couldn't even stay awake. You know, you'd be talking to him and he'd just fall asleep. And I was like, wow, I totally forgot, you know how much like the medications and just everything that he was on trying to just like mask the pain. It was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot to deal with, not just for him, but for the whole family. Right, right. What happened when you were 11? Obviously, it had been a few years since he had fallen. Within that time, again, he was prescribed lots of medication and um, just there was a lot of emotions, lots of uncertainties. I think my mom was working, like doing some kind of like decorating business, I believe, at that time. So trying to bring in money, things were just stressful. My dad's sense of purpose, all of that was kind of just 
slowly but surely kind of just crumbling away. And um, again, I was a child. I knew things were tense at home, but I didn't truly think much of it. I also do want to point out too, like as a child, I was a daddy's girl. If you could ever know one, he would help me set up my Barbie toys and things like that. So I always like grew up really just loving my dad and just being so, you know, wanting to hang out with him and things like that. I even remember, I mean, it's kind of off topic, but I remember walking. It was like an open house at my elementary school. I was probably in like first grade, maybe. I remember walking down the hall with my dad and I was holding his hand. And I remember one of our very loved janitors that everyone knew and everyone loved had walked by us. And he told my dad, you know, you better soak up these moments. You know, one day she's not going to want to do that. And I remember thinking, what is this man talking about? Like, I will never feel that way, you know? So yeah, to go back to where we were at that time, um, it had been a couple years since he had fallen and things were rocky and he wasn't stable emotionally. He was always like in his bedroom He'd watch TV. The TV was on all hours of the night. He just wasn't comfortable. And so I was, yes, 11. And um, he had gotten to the point where he, my parents had, I guess, gotten into a disagreement about something and he was done. And so he decided that things would be better without him. And so I was actually across the street at my best friend's house. She was my neighbor and we were playing or something. And I remember my mom hollering from my house. She was hollering my name. My brother wasn't home at the time and she was frantic. So I, you know, went back over to our house. And again, I guess my parents had gotten into a disagreement and my mom found his pills that he had just taken all of his sleeping pills and he had locked himself in his bedroom. And so she was panicking and that's the moment when I had come back. And so she had called 911. I remember speaking to 911 for a minute. Again, my brother wasn't home. So it was just me and my mom in that moment. I remember very vividly at that time, kind of like shutting off my own panic and feeling like, okay, got to stuff it down right now. Like, got to take care of this. Like, mom needs me. I've got to handle this. You know, no one else is here. This, I just, I find this so incredible that you took on that role and you were only 11. Yeah, I don't know how. I, I really, because I do, I very, very much, I can see our us in the living room and I feel that. And I really think it had been just everything leading up to it, really. I mean, my mom also struggled with anxiety. And so I was very keen as a child and still am to this day. I'm very aware of people's body language and like the slightest change in mood. I'm like, uh oh, what's wrong? Tell me I know something's wrong. And I think that's also due to trauma. I think that is like the effects of it. I'm just thinking from 
from your standpoint as a child, what a heavy burden to know yeah. that the, your two parents are at home, but you're the one that has to kind of be the, the calm one in this situation. Yeah, it's a lot, I guess. But I did take on that role too of like caretaker. I was very wanting to make sure everything was okay, especially after this. It was a lot just trying to keep that family peace and as a child wanting that easy, you know, fun time and it wasn't really there. So So your dad, you said your dad was locked in the bedroom? Apparently, he had clo- he wouldn't let my mom in. I was able to go in. So he it wasn't locked, but they were at it and and when I say they were at it, I think they had gotten into an argument. It wasn't physical. They had never had gotten to a physical like physical abuse or anything like that, but it was just they argued, you know, they weren't seeing eye to eye and again, the stress was high overall. When you came in the door, the the front door, when you came into the house, mm-hmm. your mom was already on the phone with 911. Obviously, you knew before she even told you something is really wrong here. Yes. What did you do at that point? I mean, I just remember standing there and that moment, you know, of, okay, I've got to get it together and be strong kind of came over me. And then my mom had asked, the dispatcher had told her to ask me to check and see if, yes, he was trying to end his life. So my mom passed on that information to me. And of course, I was in that mindset of like, okay, we got to take care of it. So I just went on in into his bedroom and it was dark. I remember it was dark in there. He turned off the lights and all three of our dogs at the time were in there. TV was off. He was just laying. The fan was on. I remember I walked in. I was like, dad, you know, he's laying in bed. And I was like, are you trying trying to end your life. And I just remember he was already drowsy at that point and he nodded yes. And the next thing I remember is my grandpa, actually, my mom must have been able to contact my her parents. And my grandpa had come in and had to like pull me off of my dad because I was like, like shaking him on top of him, you know, kind of like not CPR, but I was just 11 and trying to wake him up. So I just remember him pulling me off of him and then the paramedics came in and took him away and they were able to give him like that charcoal, I guess is what they do to like pump his stomach, um, to help him vomit up everything. So I know they were able to do that. The one thing that stands out to me though, is the feeling of I had that strong feeling of needing to get it together and like be strong, you know? And then after I remember a very strong sense of, okay, I can't trust him. Like it was very like, I put that wall up so quick. I was no longer felt like a daddy's girl. You know, I was scared. I was, I loved him, but I was hurt. And like, why wouldn't, you know, why, Did I not do something good enough for him to want to stay? You know, what, what was it? So yes, he survived it, but there was a lot of questioning and pain after as well. 
I can kind of, I mean, from a psychological standpoint, it kind of makes sense that, you know, if he can so easily make this decision to leave his family, how could you trust him after that? Right, right. Did any of your friends know that this happened? Like, did the no. neighbor friends see the ambulance come or anything? You know, actually, that's a good point. I'm sure they did. I'm sure. But I don't really remember. I know I never said anything. It was like silence after that. It was like my big, dark secret, you know? I remember going to school and, and, you know, it was nothing. I didn't speak of it. Even to my cousins who were like my best friends, I don't remember telling them anything. None of us did. And it wasn't a said thing to to not speak of it, but it was just like this, almost like just like this family shame. Like, let's try to save name and keep it here. We're trying to deal with it kind of thing. No one needs to know. Obviously, my grandparents, my family knew, my close family. I'm sure my cousins might have known. I don't know, but I never said a word, you know. And even to my friend across the street, who knows what I said. I imagine I just brushed it off and was like, oh, my dad got sick. I don't know. Boy, if there's ever a, a situation where family counseling for all of you would have helped just to talk about it and, man. Yeah. Well, we we actually did. Again, it wasn't really pleasant <laughs> because there, I mean, obviously my dad was in a mind state where he had wanted to end his life. And so now he's living with life after that and still struggling and still dealing with all these things. And now all of us are also, you know, struggling with the fact that he wanted to do that. And just the whole situation. It was just never like you couldn't get out of it. Like our home, it just felt like it was so chaotic inside. Even though there was so much love, obviously, like we wanted to make it work, but it was hard. <laughs> and we did go to counseling. And I remember all the time after that, like if anything happened, I'd be like, mom, can we call Dr. So-and-so so he can talk to dad, you know, and she'd be like, well, Sally, I think your dad needs to talk to him. You know, it was just, he was like my savior at that time. Like, okay, maybe he's going to make it better. This doctor, this psychologist. And I think it helped us probably process it a little bit, but it didn't last very long. That's a pretty big, dark secret for a preteen and, uh, or teenager, you know, yeah. to carry around all the time. Yeah, it really makes you think like you never know what kids are going through, what anyone's going through, you know, just trying to day by day get through it. The teen years are stressful enough mm -hmm. when you without adding something like this into it. So that story was really kind of just to set up the story of what really what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. If we fast forward a few years you're 18. Mm -hmm. And what was your relationship like with your dad and your mom uh, at that time? My mom and me are so close. We're like very similar as well. We talk the same. We're, I just love her to pieces. And at that time, it kind of felt like she was almost like a single mom. She did everything with my brother and I. She would take us places, you know, all of that. So we were very close. We leaned on each other a lot. 
And again, things were still stressful. And I was also a teenager. So those years leading up to being 18, I was not only like dealing with, you know, our home life and trying to deal with all of that, but also being a teenager and rolling my eyes. Like my dad would love to like lecture me. And now I look back on those with a smile, but oh, it was so annoying. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, why are you telling me these things? You know, like, okay, be careful out there, you know, just being a dad in that sense. So I just did not want to really be around him all that much. And he had told me even at one point, I don't know how old I was, but he was like, you know, I don't know how to, I don't know if he said talk with me or connect with me. He's like, you know, you're getting older and I just, I don't know. And I remember thinking, oh, you're just so annoying. Like, stop. <laughs> like, Yeah. At 18, again, I loved him and I wished things were different, but um, it just felt like he was, he was always there. <laughs> he was always, that was actually something I spoke with a pastor. I was younger, I remember. And he was like, well, tell me something positive, you know, about your dad. I was like getting some counseling from him. And I was like, well, he's always there. <laughs> he, he never leaves, you know, because he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he couldn't go anywhere. We, you know, he'd just be in his room on the bed and and so he was, he was always there, but he wasn't emotionally or really mentally. Uh, he tried, I think, but it just, it wasn't, I feel like I needed more at that time of being a teenager. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. 
One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com what. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus, or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. Again, I was 18, just turned 18. I turned 18 in September and I had just graduated high school. And so I was working at a grocery store and I still remember like getting off of my, my, I think I was a bagging, like the courtesy clerk is the name. I was like the bagger, you know, bagged groceries. So I got off of that job and went out to my best friend's house and we were finally hanging out with these guys that we thought were the coolest thing. And they were having like a house party and we didn't really do a whole lot of party kind of things at that age. So we were, we just drove around most of the time and just had fun. So that felt like we were being like cool and, you know, going to this party. And so we went there that night and hung out and I never like, went back to sleep we might have like gone back to her house but I never changed out of my clothes from that day like we were just out and so that morning um from my house to her house was kind of a drive I think it was like 40 minutes so I went to her house like every weekend and we always hung out and we still always hang out she's like my sister basically now I remember leaving that morning in my same outfit. Of course, I was leaving because I was going to go to church. Church was every Sunday. And so I didn't want to miss it, but I was, of course, exhausted. And that I, I got to ask you that that seems just so it seems like a weird contrast that you're out all night Saturday partying, but then you felt obligated to go to church on yeah. on Sunday morning. It's like yeah. okay, I'm going to I'm going to be the rebellious teenager for a while, but now I'm going to go to church. Yeah. And I will say though, like us quote unquote partying, I don't think there was it was literally us just being somewhere. Like we didn't 
drink anything. We didn't, it was just like, we felt like we were so. You were Christian partiers. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yes. We were, we were just trying to, you know, be cool and whatever, but still, I mean, it was that sense of like, okay, okay. Like I need to like get back to my roots kind of thing, like back to church. Like, and I loved church. I really did. And but again, I think it was that dynamic of like being a teenager as well. And like it was very much ingrained in me and still is, you know, that that's my faith is like so important to me. But also I was a teenager and I wanted to like have fun and to hang out with these these guys that we thought were the coolest thing. So <laughs> So you got back you got back home. Early in the morning then on Sunday morning. Yes, yes. I would say it was like around eight and it was like the most beautiful morning. I I don't know why I remember that, but I do. I solely remember like driving. The sky was so blue. It was so beautiful. And I got back home around eight o'clock. My mom was getting ready. My dad, of course, was still in his bedroom. TV was going. We actually had just gotten a puppy. So said hi to the dogs. We had one dog. It was a basset hound named Bubba. And he had one eye at the time. So he was an older dog and we had just gotten this puppy. So anyways, I'd gotten in. My mom was getting ready. And I remember thinking like my actual eyeballs were like burning because I had not slept. And I remember thinking I am so tired. Like I kind of just want to go to bed, but I felt like, no, I'll go to church. Like I want to go. But I played with the idea of just staying home and sleeping. My mom ended up leaving. And so I was the last one there aside from my dad. And again, he was still in his bedroom. I think he was sleeping. I close all the doors because again, we had this puppy. So we wanted to make sure that he wouldn't get into anything. I had that moment of like, oh, should I say bye to my dad? Cause I was driving my own vehicle. I had actually his, uh, it was like a 91 Ford Bronco. And that was my favorite vehicle I've ever had. It was so fun. And, um, it was actually his, he had gotten it new and Anyways, I was driving that. So I had to drive myself to church. And I had that moment of like, should I say goodbye? And I was like, no, I do not want to hear it. You know, I don't want to like, I don't know if he'll know I was in the same outfit from the night before. Like I still hadn't changed at that point. And so I was like, no, I am not in the mood. So I left, went to church with my mom. Just a practical question. Were you able to stay awake? During the church service? I remember like my eyes were heavy and I am a sleepy person to begin with. So add on like no sleep. Oh, I could sleep anywhere, anytime. So yes, that day I was tired. Like I just couldn't wait to get back home and like crawl into bed after church. Got through church and I think we had gone to the early service. So we were done a little bit before like lunchtime for us. And so we were headed back again. My church was really, really close to where I lived. I would say it was at the most a 10 minute drive. So it wasn't very far, but I remember I was kind of following my mom, like not directly behind her, but she was ahead of me and we were heading back home. My brother, he was married and his wife was pregnant, my sister-in-law. 
she was pregnant at the time. So he wasn't living at home at that time. So it was just me and my mom that was living there. And so I was following her home and I still remember where I was when she called me on my little flip phone. She called me and she said, Sally, our house is on fire. Our house is on fire. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And I remember my stomach like dropping. I was on this residential street and I was next to this one church and I was behind this man and we were just, I needed to turn left at the stop sign. And I was waving my arms. I was honking. He probably thought I was a lunatic. Like I was in such a panic at that moment, like thinking like, what is going on? Like our house is on fire. It's not something you really think happens, you know? And so I went down, I finally was able to turn left and there was a street that ran parallel with these railroad tracks that our street was off of. And the speed limit is 25, maybe 30. And I was going 70 on that road in my Bronco. I think my brother had called me at some point of that small time. And he was like, Sally, like you need to just drive careful, you know, be safe. And and so, again, it wasn't a long drive. So I and I was going so fast. I got there pretty quick. My house was probably four blocks away from the end of the street. And so when I arrived to the street that we lived on, it was already blocked off by tons of police cars and um, people were all outside of their houses, you know, all the neighbors. I People I didn't really know because they were so far from our house, but everyone was outside of their houses and I couldn't turn down that street. So I remember just slamming my Bronco into park and it like lurching forward. I jumped out of the car, left every, I don't even know if I turned off my Bronco. I, I just jumped out of the car and I started running down the street towards my house. And it was like four or five blocks of running and I dropped something. It's, I still to this day don't know what it was or if a neighbor picked it up. Like I don't, I dropped something. I don't know. I, yeah, I have no idea if it was like a keychain or I don't know. I was just running. You could see like all the fire trucks. There was about five fire trucks that were like, our house was on a corner. And so they were kind of like all around there. I finally made it to where I saw my mom and she was standing on another block. It was like maybe a block away from our house and she was standing with a police officer. As soon as I got to them, I collapsed and I think maybe just like my adrenaline was going at that point. The cop helped me kind of like walk across the street. My mom was crying all the neighbors were again outside. And by that time, I believe my brother and his wife were there, my sister-in-law. The house, uh, firemen were like doing their thing, but the house, I knew it, the fire had been mostly put out by the time we arrived because there was no longer any dark, thick, black smoke. It was now mostly like a light gray turning into white. So I knew, okay, fire's out, but, you know, my dad wasn't any of that. And so um, we, me and my mom were taken to the house directly across the street from ours. 
was our they were good friends too, good neighbors and they had brought out a couple chairs for me and my mom to sit in. I don't know if I was crying. I think I was really in shock. My sister-in-law, uh she was kind of hunched down next to me in the chair and she would be trying to like keep my gaze and she'd be like, Sally, look at me, you know, you're okay. We're, it's okay. We're together, you know? And I, I just was so not there mentally. Like I was in shock. Like I, I don't know how else to explain it. It was a different experience. I had never felt that. This whole time your dad was still in the house. Yes. Yes. We were very close. We were across the street. So I'm sure there were firemen or, you know, officers that were around probably like relaying information as to like the status and stuff. Yeah, we were just basically just sitting there waiting. They ended up carrying our dogs out because we again we had Bubba, our uh, basset hound, one-eyed basset hound. Um, we had him. And then we had Charlie, our puppy. They had laid them. The firemen were able to get them out and lay them on the front lawn. And I remember seeing Charlie and he was as stiff as could be, as sad as that is. But I mean, that's what it looked like. I I could tell there was no life in him. And actually, they were able to, um, Bubba, that dog he just lived through everything he was able they gave him oxygen the firemen gave him oxygen and uh able to save him and so um he was not like back to normal but i remember seeing him and being like okay bubba's alive like it's okay i'm just i can't help but wonder this just seems so odd the firemen are going in to rescue the dogs did they even know your dad was in there They did. They were able to make contact. Like they were able to find him again. We had a really small house. I think it was like 900 square feet. So everything was like right there. You know, we just had like kitchen, a living room, and then the bedrooms were right there. So the fire had started in the kitchen. And so that's where the flames were. The flames were in the kitchen in that area. The bedroom, my parents' master bedroom was on the back side of the kitchen. So the wall between their the bedroom and the kitchen, that was a shared wall. So they were able to find him. He was in the bedroom um, on the floor. But my dad at that time, he had been what, almost 10 years of him being disabled and not being able to do anything. He had gained a lot of weight so he was a bigger guy it was probably around like 400 pounds at that time and our house was really small and their furniture in their bedroom was really large and like heavy wooden furniture and so I guess the firemen were just struggling they couldn't get him physically out the fire was out at that point but they couldn't move him because of the placement of where he was he was in between the bed and the window on the floor, but there was like dressers that were in the way and couldn't fit him through. And so they had to move furniture, I guess, and and make room so they could actually lift him out and carry him out. You're watching this happen. Did you see them 
bring him out of the house as you were across the street? Yes, we saw him carry they them carry him out. Couldn't really tell much. They just it took about I don't know how many of them. There was a lot of them because again, he was a bigger man and he wasn't conscious, so he wasn't moving, couldn't walk, you know. So But he was was he still alive at that time? Yes, he was still alive. When they found him, he still was breathing. But it was, he definitely didn't have any, he wasn't conscious at all, but he was breathing and he had a pulse. So they literally like put him in the ambulance and they were off. The next thing I remember is going to the hospital and we weren't told anything prior. You know, they were just like, yeah, we probably need to like go there and see how he's doing. And then we would come back to the house and deal with that stuff after. So we got to the hospital and I remember having a gross feeling just because it wasn't our normal hospital. They took him to like a different one. And I was like, this is weird because I feel like with like my grandparents and my aunt, like we were always needing to go in for something or my cousins, you know, like something was always happening. We And we were a close family. So anytime anybody went to the doctor, we were all there. And so I was just I remember thinking like, ill like why is he at this weird hospital that none of us know like don't like it and again not my main concern but I just remember slightly having that feeling of like walking in and being so unfamiliar it felt like such foreign territory and didn't feel like safe you know it was just my mom my brother my sister-in-law and my grandpa my mom's dad I believe like a nurse took us to this one portion of the hospital. I remember it was very empty in that portion. There was like some exam rooms to the side. And then they had these other small, very small, like private waiting rooms. They had our family go into that. And it was probably, I mean, it felt like a closet. It was very tiny. There were just like maybe four chairs in there. And it was just a very small square, no windows, just a small box like of a room. And so we all just sat in there. Eventually a doctor came in and they had someone else with them. And of course, now I know it was probably a social worker. And they told us, you know, they tried everything and they weren't able to save him. There was like some she didn't say it in those words specifically, but there was a moment, a millisecond where I thought she was saying that he was okay. You know, I, from however she worded that, I was thinking, oh, like, oh, he's okay. But then they said, you know, no, he died. I just remember everyone kind of wailing, maybe. Um, I like, immediately like threw myself on the floor like I didn't even think twice like it just happened like suddenly like I was like on my knees on the floor like just crying and in disbelief basically it was just so so surreal at that moment yeah it's a whole flood of various emotions when you get news like that yeah definitely do they know how the fire started? Was yes. this another was was it a potential suicide attempt again or 
what happened? You know, that was something that I kind of kind of had thought about. And but they actually did do a inspection, of course, as they would. And they had found that there was some kind of <laughs> I don't even know what to call it. It was like a connection blue or something in the wall. And it was an electrical fire. And apparently my dad, which was, again, kind of made me wonder because he wasn't really a big coffee drinker. But that day he decided to make a pot of coffee. Again, he was on tons of medication, could fall asleep at the drop of a hat just from everything he was on. I think he was even given methadone at one point just for his pain and everything. And that's very strong from my understanding. So he had put on this pot of coffee and I guess the water was running. Something was said about the water running and he had gone back to the bedroom and I guess fallen asleep and he never put any water in the coffee pot or anything. And so that sparked a fire and because I guess it was running without anything in there. My mom had shared with me that I didn't realize, I guess, three weeks prior, they had just gotten our house rewired. And of course, my dad's an electrician. He could have done it, but his state, his health was not allowing him. So they had hired somebody to rewire our house and um, everything was like in proper working order. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't have happened, but I guess it was due to him not filling up that coffee pot and falling asleep. And I will say too, the fire alarms, we did not have working fire alarms in our home. And to this day, like if I hear or notice like anybody like talk about like, oh, we need to put that up. I'm like, no, you really should. Like, I, I don't know how much that would have helped, but I imagine it would have done something, you know, to help wake him out of his sleep, but we didn't have that. So he was able to just sleep through it. He was never burned. When they did the autopsy, it was found that he died of um, smoke inhalation. In the months and the years that followed that, how did it affect you and your family? It was hard. I will say after we were let in to see him that day in the hospital, they told us and then they let him us go back and see him. And of course, you know, he was just lying on the operating table, I guess. Um, and I remember leaving that room and going to one of those empty like exam rooms. And I just remember sitting on the bed and it was dark in there. It's nothing, you know, just a very empty portion of the hospital. And I remember thinking, I, I was the worst daughter. Like that's, that was the, the voice in my mind was like, I was a horrible daughter. I didn't say goodbye. I didn't treat him the best that I could have treated him. And I also, it took me years to like be able to admit it, but I had a sense of relief. It sounds horrible for someone who maybe didn't 
or hasn't gone through anything like that it might be very hard to understand, but it there was that complex amount of feelings that I was able to feel this great sorrow and guilt, but also a sense of relief as well because our lives had been so chaotic and he was in so much pain and I was also scared too. I remember driving over to the hospital thinking like, if he makes it, like, what's it going to be like, you know, is he's already in such a bad place. And it was definitely hard. We actually ended up moving into my grandpa's house, me and my mom, again, my brother and his wife were living in an apartment at that time, but me and my mom stayed with my grandpa, who was also living with my aunt and uncle and my cousin in a small house. Like that was five minutes from our house. Well, you said it, you you were very family oriented. Yeah. So, right? <laughs> yeah. And honestly, that time, like there was six of us in that house and one bathroom. And I never remember any issues with like sharing the bathroom or anything like that. And it was really special. I mean, of course, like everything, we had just been like uprooted from our home. We had to like go like pick up clothes, you know, that day. We were living out of like bins, you know, that we could fit in the in the bedroom we were staying in. But it was a really special time to be together and have that healing time together and and just the support that we had and the love, you know, I think that really was a huge part of getting through it. There's something about when a group of people, whether it's a family or even any other group, mm -hmm. when you have a, a shared big experience, it's like it, it bonds people in some way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think so because it's just like you're able to lean on each other, you know, and it's this just like common bond, really. I understand you were diagnosed with PTSD at some yes. point after this. Yes. The healing process, as I feel like for everyone that goes through anything, it's it's definitely not a straight line. You know, it's years, it's ups and downs. Initially, right after the fire, I did not go to therapy. I actually ended up just getting like counseling through my pastor at the time, which was a huge help for me. I mean, that's like therapy in a sense, you know. I was able to like voice my pains and my fears and all of that. And so that was very helpful. But I ended up eventually in college, they offered free counseling and therapy. And so that was, I would say that is when I really started my deep dive into understanding myself and getting healing, like from all of that, you know, my childhood and, and different traits that I had picked up along the way. And, and I eventually, yeah, I was, I would say I was, I was probably in therapy for at least five years, at least, I mean, off and on, I would say maybe like seven years, maybe more, but it was finally, um, I think it was after I was, I graduated college and a lot of stuff came up after that. And I think because maybe 
I was so focused in college and it was so structured and I had like, you know, I was able to keep my mind busy and it was like my main focus for four years. And I think after that is when things kind of came to a head and I was in my 20s and I was just really like learning who I was and understanding why I was the way I was. And so, uh, yeah, I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD and that was really hard for me. I never wanted to tell anybody because I was like, oh my gosh, that's that doesn't happen to normal people. That's just like a soldier, you know, overseas. Yeah, there's a stigma. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's such a normal, not normal, but it's a common diagnosis. I now work in a mental health field and I see it all the time. And it's awful, but it's just like your body has to process things somehow. And sometimes through traumatic situations, it comes out in different ways, you know? You indicated that you felt guilty because that Sunday morning you thought about opening the door and saying goodbye to your dad and, and you decided not to. How do you think your life after the fire would have been different if you had opened that door and said goodbye to him? You know, I don't know. I, I will say that I did think about that and have thought about that a lot over the years. Just thinking about all of the what ifs. What if I had stayed home and taken a nap? Like, could I have helped him? Like, would I have been able to get us out if I, you know, was more awake than him or whatever? And I think, of course, you know, the thought of like, always tell your loved ones you love them comes to mind. And it's so true. You know, I say I love you to my fiance all the time. I say it to all my friends and my family because I want them to know, you know, for sure, without a doubt, I love you. And kind of just like making sure I know that I do my part and not regretting it. But that day, I don't know that it would have changed a lot because I think I still would have felt guilt for our relationship at the time and the pain that he was experiencing. And I think I still would have dealt with everything in a similar way, maybe just not have had that initial guilt of, oh, I didn't say goodbye, but it's given me a lot of grace for myself. And I always like to, if anybody is like regretting how they acted in a certain situation or how a relationship went or something, I'm like, you've got to remember that you, like me, for instance, in that time, I wasn't I was surviving. You know, we all were surviving. My dad was doing the best that he could in the ways that he thought he could. You know, I was doing the same as a teenager. You know, I there was a lot on all of our plates. And to have Grace looking back on my 18 year old self, knowing like, hey, you were OK, like you were doing OK, like you just you can't beat yourself up for what happened because of you got to remember the situation too. Like, yeah, I wish things had been different, but I don't want to carry that shame or that guilt because again, we all were doing the best we could. It was just 
an unfortunate, a hard situation that I'm sure my dad did not want any part of. But this is the saying, the cards that were dealt to him, you know, and that's just life. Yeah, exactly. As unfair as it can be. Is there any part of this that we haven't talked about that you want to mention? I do. I was thinking um, kind of a cool, weird thing. I don't know. But I guess like a lot of times people say that like after they lose someone, you know, there might be like a bird or a butterfly that they see that reminds them. It's always a butterfly, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and again, like I, I did years of therapy and finally came to a place where I was no longer angry with my dad. And I felt like if I saw him, sorry, if I saw him today, I truly, truly, truly believe that there would just be love there and no guilt, no shame for both of us, you know, because I'm sure I can't speak for him really, but imagining what he felt throughout his life, like I'm sure he held a lot of guilt as well, not being able to be who he wanted to be. And I feel like there's just so much healing there. And my dad was a very <laughs> stoic kind of guy. Like he was serious. He had his goofy side, but he wasn't a loud person. He was very quiet. But I I just find it funny because the date of the fire and his death was October 22nd. And I would say, I don't know, it was not long after the fire that, um, again, I was 18. I had just graduated high school, so I had started going to our community college in the area. And it was actually my first visit there. So again, it was probably the next a few months after the fire. And, and I was at the library and outside of the library at this college, they had police officers and just to help with, you know, theft and stuff like that, I'm sure. I walked up and it was the same officer that had helped carry me across the street. I, uh, you know, I didn't know if he had remembered me, but he did. And I, you know, talked with him and he's like, well, here, you know, you need a locker to put your purse and belongings in before you go into the library. So he gave me a locker and the locker was number 1022. So it was at 1022. And um, I was like, so weird. And I remember like going home and telling everybody and throughout my life since then, if I pick up my phone this morning, it happened. I won't have my phone with me. I'll pick it up. What time is it? It's 1022, right on the dot. And every time I see 1022, whether it's a locker number, the time of day, um, an address, like, I'm like, okay, dad, like, I love you. You're there, you know? And yeah, it's just like a, a cool little thing. Um, just kind of like, to me, showing like the redemption of the situation. 
I guess, yeah, it just reminds me of like God's faithfulness. And through this, you know, just being able to be on the other side. Unfortunately, like my dad isn't here, but I rest in the fact that he is no longer hurting and his life still had purpose and he was still so loved and so worthy of love. And I'm grateful that I had the 18 years, even as rocky as they were those last few years. I'm thankful I had them. You know, a lot of people don't even have a dad from year one. So I'm thankful for that. And for just the whole experience, I wouldn't have said that right after the fire. I remember wishing and praying it had been, I was like, I can't wait till it's three years later because maybe by then I'll feel better. And now, I mean, it's been 16 years and the pain is still there. You know, I still miss him. I still think about the what ifs, but there's been healing and there's hope after trauma and I truly believe there's always somebody that maybe you don't know yet, but that has been there too and understands to an extent, you know, and I find a lot of comfort in that myself. I wanted to tell you about a couple of things before we close out this episode. At this point, I have lots of guests and stories in the works. In the beginning, in the first couple of years doing this show, I had to always go searching for stories. Well, not anymore. I do still keep an eye out for crazy stories that might be in the news, but most of the stories I get now actually come from listeners. This podcast has been downloaded more than 6 million times now, so the listening audience has grown really big, and so I get new story submissions all the time from people who listen to the show, which is great. Now I just need to figure out how to have 36 hours in a day so I can keep up with it. But believe me, there are some great stories coming your way. There is one guest in particular who I've been looking for for a couple of years now. This is a young lady who appeared on a TV show called The Carbonaro Effect. All I know is that her first name is Genesis, and she probably lives in the Chicago area. If you have any ideas about how to track down this person, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me for more details. And if you happen to be a Reddit user, you're welcome to join the What Was That Like subreddit. We just hit 500 people in that group. There's usually some discussion about each episode of the podcast, but for more in-depth conversations about the show, where everyone talks about what they were thinking as they listen to the story, that happens in the Facebook group. Lots of discussions over there. And we do talk about things other than the podcast. I recently posted this question in that group. A very simple, seemingly innocent question. I just asked, do you wear socks to bed? And wow, do people have something to say about that? For some people, it's, yeah, I always wear socks in bed. But other people are like, socks in bed? No way, I'm not a psycho. I never would have thought this was such a lively topic, but it's definitely fun seeing the responses. So come on over and join us. What was that like.com slash Facebook. All right, it's listener story time. If you're new to the show, every episode of What Was That Like ends with a story that's been sent in by a listener. It can be happy, sad, funny. 
It just needs to be something interesting that happened to you that you can tell in about five minutes. If you have a story you want to tell, record it on your phone and email it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. In this story, we hear about a scary experience in Hawaii. Stay safe, and I'll see you back here in two weeks. In the early 1990s, I lived in Hanalei, Hawaii, on the island of Kauai. One day, I was foolish enough to let a friend talk me into going boogie boarding with him when I had no business going out there at all. I had no experience with boogie boards or surfing or anything ocean-related, and waves that day were enormous. I mean, these waves were huge. I didn't understand it at the time, but this was also a very, very dangerous shore break. My first clue should have been the fact that that we were in Kauai, Hawaii, and there wasn't a single surfer out there, but I didn't pick up on that for some reason. My friend explained to me how we could paddle out in the channel and position ourselves perfectly to catch a wave. My decision to go out there with him turned out to be one of the stupidest decisions I've ever made, and it almost cost me my life. In any case, we paddled out in the channel, and pretty soon we were out there with these giant waves rolling underneath us. I was facing toward the beach, and suddenly I heard my friend yelling from 15 or 20 yards behind me, I'm getting out of here. It's too late for you. You're caught. Paddle as hard as you can and try to ride one in. Hurry. I looked back and saw him paddling frantically away from me, leaving me out there alone. Then I saw what looked like a tsunami headed straight for me, and I knew I was in serious trouble. Terrified, I began to paddle as hard as I could toward the shore, hoping I would somehow be able to ride it and come out of it okay. When the wave got to me, the first thing I remember thinking was how high it was. It felt like it lifted me a hundred feet, and I panicked and let go of my boogie board. I was not wearing a leash, and it went crashing down in front of me. When I came over the falls, I got driven head first into the sea floor and was tossed around like a raggedy and doll. The pain was so intense, I thought it broke my neck. I couldn't figure out which way was up, and I couldn't hold my breath for much longer. When I finally came to the surface and got my head above water to take a breath, I was horrified to see the face of an even bigger wave bearing down on me. I was caught in the impact zone and could not have been in a more dangerous situation. As I got pulverized into the seafloor and tossed around again, I thought for sure I would die. After getting hammered by a third wave, the whole thing finally ended with me getting washed up on shore, bruised and battered, and crying like a child. Needless to say, I didn't get in the water again for a long time.